Good to be with you again. I'm going to ask you to turn to uh, two portions of Scripture. First of all, Matthew chapter 27. You'll find it on page 999 of your pew Bibles. You can also follow on the screen. And then secondly, we will take a look at Psalm 22, which is found on page 547 uh, in your pew Bibles. But again, it will be on the screen. Just one, um, if you are following the series that Pastor Bert and I uh, came up with, um, we did actually get out of step. Uh, I don't recall exactly the reason why we decided to do that. Probably I felt that one sermon I had was better than another or whatever. Uh, but Pastor Bird actually preached on I Thirst last week, which comes after the word that we're going to focus on this week. So if you're confused, it's our fault. Uh, hopefully the confusion will disappear. Let's uh, read from Scripture. Beginning at verse 45 of Matthew chapter 27. From noon until three in the afternoon, darkness came over all the land. About three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lima sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing there heard this, they said, he's calling Elijah. Immediately, one of them ran and got a sponge. He filled it with wine vinegar, put it on a staff, and offered it to Jesus to drink. The rest said, now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to save him. But when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. At that moment, the dirt curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook, the rocks split, and the tombs broke open. The bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to life. They came out of the tombs after Jesus' resurrection and went into the holy city and appeared to many people. When the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and all that had happened, they were terrified and exclaimed, Surely he was the Son of God. Many women were there watching from a distance. They had followed Jesus from Galilee to care for his needs. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of Zebedee's sons. And now going over to uh, Psalm 22, page 547. The psalmist, now the interesting point in this scholar, in some scholar's mind, is that while Matthew and Mark both quote verse 1, some scholars pretty convincingly state that Jesus likely recited this whole psalm from the cross. And in that light, hear these words from Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? So far from the cry, my cries of anguish. My God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer. By night, but I find no rest. Yet, you are enthroned as the Holy One. You are the one Israel praises. In you, our ancestors put their trust. They trusted, and you delivered them. 
To you they cried out and were saved. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by everyone, despised by the people. All who seek see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord, they say. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. You delivered me out of the womb. You made me trust in you, even at my mother's breast. From birth I was cast on you. From my mother's womb you have been my God. Do not be far from me, for trouble is near, and there is no one to help. Many bulls surround me. Strong bulls of Bashan encircle me. Roaring lions that tear their prey open their mouths wide against me. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart was turned to wax, it was melted within me. My mouth was dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. Dogs surround me. A pack of villains encircles me. They pierce my hands and my feet. All my bones are on display. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. But you, Lord, be not far from me. You are my strength. Come quickly to help me. Deliver me from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dogs. Rescue me from the mouth of lions. Save me from the horns of the wild oxen. I will declare your name to my people. In the assembly, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, honor him. Revere him, all you descendants of Israel. For he has not despised or scorned the suffering of the afflicted one. He has not hidden his face from him, but has listened to his cry for help. From you comes the theme of my praise in the great assembly. Before those who fear you, I will fulfill my vows. The poor will eat and be satisfied. Those who seek the Lord will praise him. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations will bow down before him, for dominion belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. All the rich of the earth will feast and worship all who go down to the dust will kneel before him, those who cannot keep themselves alive. Prosperity will serve him, or posterity will serve him. Future generations will be told about the Lord. They will proclaim his righteousness, declaring to a people yet unborn, he has done it. This is the word of the Lord. One of the most common questions, I think, is a very short one, a one-word question. Why? Kids ask it, why can't I have more candy? Teens ask it, why can't I have the car? Adults ask it, why are mortgage rates going up? Al tells a story about the family in Guatemala. Why can't we earn enough 
to pay both the principal and the interest on the debt accumulated for our child. Why? Why do bad things happen to good people? Why, I think, is often generated by the context of suffering. We, we don't generally ask why when good things happen to us. Why are we blessed? Why do we have abundance? Why are our cars not being broken into on the parking lot this morning? Why, when we go home, will we be able to have soup with boiled hamburger? Why? All of those things come to us and we struggle with the question, why? Jesus asks the question, my God, my God, why? It's interesting to think about that for a moment because of who we confess Jesus to be. He is the Word made flesh. He is the eternal God who became incarnate in the Virgin Mary, conceived by the Holy Spirit, and was born. Wouldn't he have known everything? And the answer that he gives to that question is no, I don't know when I will be coming back. That is decided by the Father. So there seems some limitation to his understanding. The disciples ask him, you know, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he says, it's not for you to know what the Father has decided. Apparently it's not for him either. So he asks, I think, quite legitimately, why? Why, my God, have you forsaken me? And I think it is worthwhile for us to ponder that question. Why? Why was Jesus forsaken on the cross? And as we ponder, I think it's important that we play the role of detective a little bit. That we play, pay some attention to the scene, to the circumstance, and to what Matthew enters into as he relates the story, largely reflective of what Mark has presented, but with some interesting little changes. And scholars believe that Mark was the first author of a gospel and that Matthew took over most of what was in Mark and put it into his gospel. So if Mark was first, why does Matthew add a few little details? Mark, for example, tells us that Jesus was crucified, actually nailed to the cross at 9 o'clock in the morning. Matthew comes with this little detail from noon till 3 in the afternoon. Darkness descends over Golgotha. So from 9 till noon, there was this time when Jesus was crucified and there were words of grace spoken. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Today you will be with me in paradise. Behold your son, behold your mother. Words of grace, words of expansion. But then... Midst all those words of grace were also words of mockery. If you are the Christ, save yourself in us. If you are the Messiah, 
call for help and come down from the cross. And Jesus doesn't. And we ponder, why? Why? Why does darkness descend upon Golgotha from noon till three in the afternoon, from high noon? And note that it is the time of Passover, and Passover happens at full moon, according to Scripture, and solar eclipses don't happen at that time. So it's not a solar eclipse. This is a supernatural darkness that is brought down upon Golgotha at the decision of the creator of the heavens and the earth. That type of supernatural darkness has happened before in the past. Recall the story of the Exodus. The story when God intervened in the land of Egypt to take his enslaved people from the land of Egypt and bring them to the promised land as a people who would be redeemed, as a people who would be for him a nation of priests in the whole world. And which plague was the plague of darkness? Any recall immediately from Sunday school? First? No. It was the ninth. And how long did it last? Three days. And where was it focused? On the land of Egypt, but not amongst the Israelites. There was this contrast of darkness with light. And there was this judgment on the gods of the Egyptians who proved to be powerless before the God of Israel. And finally, Pharaoh summons Moses, and Moses repeats to Pharaoh, let my people go, fine, go. And then the light comes, and Pharaoh changes his mind. And then comes the tenth. The plague marked by the Passover lamb being slaughtered and blood being put on the doorpost and the lentil of the people who were followers of the God of Israel. And the Passover, uh, or, or the angel of death, passes over all of those houses marked with the blood of the Passover lamb. And everywhere where there is no passing over, there is death. And finally, by the death of those who are judged by God, the people of Israel, the enslaved people of Israel, are freed. And now reminiscent of that event, three days of darkness, people who are enslaved, not by people, not by Egyptians, but by the reality of sinfulness, people enslaved by the reality of sinfulness, experience darkness for three hours and it appears that there is quiet during that time. Why? Because the wrath of God is being poured out upon the Son that he sent. Note these words from uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Now it's important that we dwell for a moment on those words because the word sin here is put in the singular. It doesn't say God made him who had no sins 
to be sins or to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. There, it's all the sin of the world, all of the sin that ever happened in the past, in the present, and will happen in the future that has been laid upon the Son of God in that period of time for three hours and God pours out his wrath in answer to the question, why? Because Jesus is for us the substitute, the Passover lamb, the one whose blood is poured out so that the wrath of God passes over us. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us. All the sin of the world is laid upon him. Now you can extrapolate a theological conclusion from that, and that is this. That if people are separated from God eternally, they are not separated because they are in their sin. They are separated because they are not in Christ. Because in Christ, sin has been paid for. And that needs to sink into all of us. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So it is fair to say in this moment that hell comes to Calvary. And that means that we need to be clear in our thinking about one of the confessions of faith. And so the Apostles' Creed and phrases from the Apostles' Creed are well known to us. He, that is Jesus, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to hell. Very familiar words. They've been with the church for thousands of years. And yet when you think about it, you can come to the conclusion that Jesus spent three days in hell. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, was buried. He descended to hell. Yet, in the Gospels and in the Scriptures, Jesus says to the thief on the cross who said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Today, you will be with me in paradise. The word paradise is used three times in the New Testament. Once with that reality of uh, Jesus speaking uh, to uh, the thief on the cross. And when Paul, the Apostle Paul, we think, says he was gathered up to the third heaven, to, parad to the paradise of God. That's how the, all of those things unfold in, in the scriptures. So Jesus says, today you will be with me in heaven. So he can't, well, I suppose he could be, because, you know, he's in heaven, he's spiritually present with us all, all the time. So he is everywhere present, even though he is located in a single place. Jesus is with the thief on the cross after death, in heaven, not in hell. And then Jesus, and we'll, and we'll look, those words will be looked at in subsequent weeks. Jesus will say, uh, it is finished. 
And Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. He doesn't commit his spirit to be in hell. And you say, ooh, that's a little different. But you think, I think it's important to understand what happens on the cross. On the cross, hell comes there, and Jesus experiences separation from God. My God, why have you forsaken me? He is in the utter grip of despair. If you wonder about this for a moment, if you want to, you can also think about the next phrase, which won't appear on the slide. But he ascended to heaven. When did that happen? Well, if you read the Gospel of Luke in chapter 24, it appears he ascends to heaven on Easter Sunday. Just read it, end of the chapter. And yet we know that Luke begins the Acts of the Apostles. Forty days later, Jesus ascends to heaven. So, so be ready to grapple with this time issue a little bit because there is something that wants to be conveyed to us. When Jesus was on the cross, hell came there and he felt completely and totally abandoned. And yet, he clings to hope. If it is true what the psalmists say, or what scholars say about Psalm 22, that it might have been that Jesus recited the whole thing and then Matthew and Mark just recite the first line of it, and that incidentally is in Aramaic as you find it in the Gospel, whereas David wrote it in all likelihood in Hebrew, but Jesus is adept at the translations of these things. And yet, as he speaks it, he speaks it both in utter despair, I'm being treated like a dog, and yet he clings to hope because he knows that God the Father will not ultimately forget him. Jesus comes to the cross as a willing sacrifice. His arm isn't being twisted by God the Father. He is fully aware of what, what, what was awaiting him. He pleads in the Garden of Gethsemane, as we would well understand, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. But not your will, but Oh, not my will, but your will be done, if it be possible. And the Father said, no, I'm not going to let the cup pass. And Jesus willingly goes. He doesn't resist. He doesn't run. When Peter takes his sword and chops off Malchus's ear, he stops to heal Malchus. And then he says to Peter, put away your sword. Put away your sword because I'm going to do what God wants me to do. Why have you forsaken me? Jesus asks. And the Father says, because I need an atoning sacrifice for the sin of my people. And you are the only one who can provide it. And that makes us think for a moment about the reality of our own attitude towards sin. When we come to Good Friday, we need to stop to think about 
the nailing process and reflect on the song, it was my sin that nailed him there. Therefore, we should never think about sin lightly. Eh, it's just a little thing. It doesn't make that much difference. Yeah, it does. It makes an eternal difference. People look at sin and look at the influence of the devil. Some of you are old enough to remember a comedian by the name of Flip Wilson who used to love to say, oh, it's the devil made me do it. No. It was your surrender to the devil's influence that made you do it. We should never be casual about our responsibility. It was my sin that nailed him there. Why is he on the cross? Because I need him on the cross. And you need him too. That's the reality. But as I said, the psalmist indicates that Jesus clings to hope because he knows that when the price is paid, the Father will be satisfied. And he will lift the judgment that is rightly ours from us. And he will open wide access to himself. Does that happen for everyone? Apparently not. Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And someone comes and, and takes a, a stick and a sponge with sour wine, wine that the soldiers would drink, gives it to him to drink. And others say, leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah, misinterpreting Eli or Eloi, some translations have that, as him calling Elijah. Let's see if Elijah will come and rescue. After all, Elijah had that reputation, you know. Israel was suffering under Ahab. They, they were filled with despair and suffering because there was no water. And last week, Pastor Bert related how important water is to our very survival. You can f survive without food for a more lengthy period of time that you can survive without water. And Ahab was looking around, and finally he meets Elijah. Ah, you troubler of Israel. And Elijah responds, it's not me who troubles Israel. Right? So Elijah brings this, this word of, or this action of hope, and so finally there's this confrontation on the top of Mount Carmel. And Elijah says, well, you know, if God is God, follow him, and if Baal is God, follow him, and let's have a contest. And that contest is won clearly by the God of Israel. And rain pours down. Let's see if Elijah will come and rescue him. And then Jesus says, and it's not quoted here in Matthew, but Jesus says, it is finished. The price has been paid. The debt has been dealt with. Just imagine the freedom. I mean, Al related that a little bit. Right? The, this family, four years of paying just interest. And because of your gifts, the price is paid and these people have freedom. And they could imagine a future for their children with education. They can imagine hopeful, positive results because of freedom. 
Some walk. Some just, eh, what difference does that make? But for those who are in Christ, they're a new creation. The old has passed. The new has come. And how is that new displayed? The temple curtain is torn. We sang about that already this morning. How the veil was torn. The temple curtain is torn. That, that temple curtain was at least 30 feet wide. It was a, a hand fist thick, about four inches. It took, they said, 300 people to maneuver it and put it into place. Why was it there? Well, because it reflected God's desire. God's desire was to be with his people. And so God gives to Moses on Mount Sinai the, this, this outline of a tabernacle, of a tent that can move. And in that tabernacle, there are two big rooms, the holy place where there was a table of showbread, and et cetera, et cetera. And then there was this cube called the Holy of Holies or the Most Holy Place. In the New Jerusalem, it is a perfect cube as well. And that cube was separated from the holy place by a curtain. Later, when the temple becomes a more permanent, or the tabernacle becomes a more permanent structure in the temple, then that big curtain is hung in place. But that curtain could only be passed through once per year by the high priest on the day of Yom Kippur, when the sacrificial lamb was poured out. But the high priest could not go in there until he had brought a sacrifice just for himself. And it is said that they even put a rope on the high priest so in case he died in the most holy place, no one have to go in there to rescue him. They could just pull him out. That, that was the idea of holiness. That while God wanted to be with his people, his people could not possibly see him and survive because they, he was holy and they are not. Once a year, the high priest goes. And then Jesus dies. He has absorbed all the wrath of God. He became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. And the temple curtain is torn from top to bottom. When you think about it, you know, curtain rods hanging. If a curtain is going to tear, it, it's going to have spread at the bottom where it will have some tension. So more, more normally, it would be torn from the bottom to the top. But this one was torn from the top to the bottom. God was saying, no more temple is required. No more blood sacrifice is required. You don't have to travel to Jerusalem to meet with me. You can meet with me wherever you are. Come in the name of Jesus who has provided full satisfaction for all sin of all humanity for all time in his death on the cross. It is finished. It is finished. Why did he have to die? So that he could provide access? Why was he abandoned? 
Why did he feel despair? So you could cling to hope and you could say, Father, here I am. Here I am. The dead are raised. It's really interesting because, you know, we, we don't have a lot of understanding because there's not any, much te any testimony at all that I could find about what happened. But the dead were raised and they don't appear until after the resurrection of Jesus. And the Apostle Paul makes that clear. He says, because Jesus is the first fruits. Have you ever wondered what Lazarus felt like when he was raised from the dead? Four days with the Father in paradise. And then he had to go back. And then he had to die again. And these people, these holy ones, raised from the dead, having been with God, now having to go back and eat boiled meat in soup. Wow. Nothing against boiled meat soup. I just think it's always hilarious that we boil hamburger and eat it with such great delight. Ever wonder what, what these people thought? But the message is clear. Death has been swallowed up in victory, the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O oh death, is your sting? Where, O oh death, is your power? We can begin to think about death differently. I mean, you read, about, you read about people in your bulletin, and I know in the last number of months you've had a number of people die, and we grieve their passing. But John Wesley, I think, caught it up right for us. He says, Christians ought to know how to die well. And maybe we should think about death no longer as terminal, but as transitional. It doesn't bring us to an end. It just brings us to a different place. It brings us into the presence of the Father. Why? Because Jesus paid the price. He set us free from the wrath of God. Not only does he give us a view of heaven, he, he gives us a view of what heaven will be like on earth. And here there's a little hint of a difference between the Gospel of Mark and the Gospel of Matthew. And if Mark was, uh, you know, first, then Matthew and Mark probably spoke about it. And, and Matthew says, well, I'm going to add a little, little wrinkle. The centurion and those who were with him. That's a phrase that does not appear in Mark. The centurion and the soldiers with him, they all relate. Truly, this was the Son of God. What does that mean? In Christ there is no Jew or Greek. In Christ there is no slave or free. In Christ there is no male or female. In Christ there is simply the community of the redeemed. That's pretty cool. I'm looking forward to going to heaven because by nature I think I'm a historian. And in heaven, all the wonders of the earth will be brought together. It will be like an eternal Smithsonian Institute that never ends. 
Ever thought about the song? I used to think this was a terrible song. Prostrate before thy throne to lie and gaze and gaze on thee. When I was a kid, I thought that was boring. Until I realized that with God there are no reruns. It's always new. It's always new. In Christ, there is no male or female, Jew or Greek, slave or free man. But what is there in Christ? Exemplary disciples who follow him. And who are they in the story? They are the women. And I'll end there. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for that little question, why? And thank you that we could play the role of detective and look at your text carefully. And thank you that out of the darkness comes light, and out of the judgment comes hope, and out of the reality of new birth comes access to you that is without restriction, and comes a new community of redeemed people without barrier or hindrance and can come the lessons of exemplary discipleship. We pray, Lord God, that we may embrace those lessons and that we may become who we already are in Jesus Christ. Help us to recognize that while grace is free, you call us to put every effort into following Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Willoughby Church Sermon Podcast. The Willoughby Church Podcast Network also has podcasts about discipleship, the Heidelberg Catechism, and even a podcast hosted by some of the youth. You can find out more about the Willoughby Church Podcast Network by going to willoughbychurch.com.